Our Father and our God, it is good to be in your house. We thank you, Father, that we can come to you knowing that we have a Savior who has paid the price that we could not pay, who has earned the righteousness that we could not earn so that we might be acceptable in your sight to be able to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave us in our sin, but you drew us to yourself with the cords of love, and that you have lavished that love upon us. So therefore, we have a desire, Father, to worship you in truth and in spirit this day. How we pray, Father, that your spirit might come and work in our hearts, We pray, Father, that we would not be distracted by things this day, that we would be able to focus upon your truth. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, so that we might rightly apply your truth to our life. We thank you, Father, for the words of Christ in this Sermon on the Mount, and we pray that we would continue to benefit from them this day. Teach us by your Spirit and your Word. We pray, Father, for those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. How we pray that today may be the day of salvation, that they might come to see their need of Christ, and that they might repent of their sins and look to Christ alone. For He is their only hope. May you be pleased to work in the hearts of those who do not know you and draw them to yourself. We pray for Christians, Father, that we may have a closer communion with you, that we may understand the truth that you have given us, and that we may deny self daily and follow Christ as he has commanded us to. We know that we cannot do this in our own power. We know that only by your Spirit living in us are we able by his grace to do that which is pleasing to you. Pray that all that would be said this day would be pleasing in your sight. We pray for our sister churches throughout the world where the gospel is proclaimed that many would come into your kingdom this day. Continue to grow your church as you have promised to do so. We pray for those that are unable to be with us. You know their reasons and their needs and we pray that you minister to them so that they might return to us soon. All this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Turn again with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we will again read verses 21 through 23. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I didn't realize until yesterday when I began to look up to make sure I had the name of the right TV program to tell the truth that it was now revised, that it's on TV again. I haven't watched any episodes since it's been revised. I think the last time I probably saw an episode was probably back in the 60s. 
I used to enjoy watching it with my parents, trying to figure out who was telling the truth. Some of you remember that show, and some of you may even be watching the current news show. You have different individuals, three individuals that all play, act to be one individual. There's a particular individual that has done something that is unique, and they all try to act like it's them. And you have to try to guess, and there's a panel of stars who try to figure out who is the real person that they're talking about. And you try to figure it out. I used to brag because I used to be the best at it in our family. I used to like to figure out. Well, the same thing holds true with Christianity. There's many who say they're Christians. They can give a good talk. They can display all the different characteristics of Christianity. But the question is, who is really telling the truth? Will the real Christians stand up? You know, at the end of the show, that's what they do. Will the real person stand up? And you find who is the real person. Before we leave this passage that we have looked at numerous times already, this passage which R.C. Sproul, as I said last week, is the scariest verse in the New Testament. I want us to consider different types of professors in the church today. For Jesus says in this passage, many will say to me on that day. So there's many who claim to be Christians. Recently, this week, a friend of mine, many of you know Richard, he's been here before, Richard Smith, shared with me about Henry Skugel. He was alive in the 1600s. And he wrote some letters to a friend of his. He never meant it to be a book, but eventually he allowed it to be published. It's titled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. I wish Richard would have introduced me to him years ago, but I'm glad he's introduced him to me now and had the opportunity to read some of his work. Listen to what he says about different professors. I cannot speak of religion, but I must lament that among us many pretend to be, so few understand what it means. Some placing it in the understanding of orthodox belief and opinions. And all they can say about their religion is that they are of this and have joined themselves to one of those sects where Christianity is most unhappily divided. Others place it in the outward man in contrast course to external duties and performances. If they live peacefully with their neighbor, keep a modest diet, observe worship, attend church or their closet, and sometimes extend their hand to relieve the poor, they think that they are absolutely free themselves. Others, again, put all religion in the affections, in joyful heart, and delighted devotion. And all they aim at is to pray with passion and think of heaven with pleasure and to be affected with those kind and sweet expressions used to court their Savior till they persuade themselves that they are mightily in love with Him and assume a great confidence in their salvation 
which they esteem the chief of Christian graces. So do these have any resemblance to piety? And at the best are but means of obtaining it or particular exercise of it, frequently mistaken for the whole of religion indeed. Sometimes wickedness pretends to have the name. I speak not now of those gross sins that the heathen use to worship their God, but are but too many Christians who would seek to sanctify their sins and follow their corrupt affections. In the life of God in the soul of man, Henry Skugel cuts through the false ideas of religion and demonstrates how to pursue true unity with God. He died at 28 years old. He wrote these letters at 27. When I read that, I said, wow. 27 years old and wrote these truths. Matter of fact, his letters that he wrote had an influence on George Whitfield. When he was 20 years old, he was given this particular book. And George Whitfield said, I really wanted to know God and be assured of my salvation. But even strict discipline didn't seem to help. Now, now you have to realize George Whitfield was in the Holy Club. You know what the Holy Club was? Charles and John Wesley had started the Holy Club there in Oxford, and he was a part of that. So he's saying even that strict discipline in the Holy Club did not help. But he says, this book, God showed me that I must be born again. So George Whitfield came to know Christ and was born again as a result of reading what Henry Skugel said. The majority who attend church truly believe that they are on their way to heaven. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they go to church, right? I mean, that's one of the check marks that you have to make to be able to get to heaven. That's what they think. They believe that attending is one of the requirements to get there. So if you ask someone, what do you think it's going to take to get a person into heaven? They will most likely respond with one of these answers. Being a church member attending when you are able. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that church attendance is not important. I've often stressed how important it is that a true child of God desires to worship the living God. He desires to corporately worship Him with God's people every Lord's day. But that will not get Him into heaven. A real Christian has a new desire after conversion to worship God. No one has to convince him. No one has to beg him. No one has to force him to attend worship. He looks forward to worshiping God every Lord's day. If some church members show up for their jobs the way they show up for worship, they would be fired. Right? 
I mean, if you showed up for worship 50% of the time, you'd be fired. If you showed up for worship 75% of the time, you'd be fired, right? So what about worship? I cannot make anyone love to worship God. The reason why someone loves to worship God is because of God's grace has entered their heart and changed their life to where they have a new desire. Remember what Jesus said earlier in this sermon in chapter 7 verse 20. By their fruits you will know them. Now, it's easy to understand what Jesus is saying there. The the youngest child here can understand that you will know them by their fruits. I mean, if I told you that I love tennis, and I didn't own a tennis racket, I didn't own tennis balls, I didn't watch it, I, I didn't watch Wimberland yesterday, I never talk about it, I never play it, What would you think? Now, I told you I love tennis, but I don't do any of those things. You'd say, you're crazy, right? But why is it that there are those who say they love God, but they seldom attend worship, never open their Bibles at home, only pray in times of trouble, never read Christian books, never talk about Christianity. But yet they say, I'm a Christian. So are we to believe them? Well, what would be your conclusion about that person? Then there are those, some would say, well, they're just a cardinal Christian. Well, the two words can't even go together. Worldly Christian, where is that in the Bible, that there are worldly Christians? When Paul is addressing those there at Corinth, he's asking the question, are you not carnal? He's not saying you're a carnal Christian. He's asking, are you not worldly? Are you not lost is what he's asking. But yet there are those who had to find some kind of place to put these individuals who had made a profession of faith, had been baptized, but they never came to church and never had anything to do with God's people. And they say, yeah, but I know they're saved because they prayed that prayer and they were baptized. we got to put them in some kind of category. So let's come up with the category cardinal Christian. And they can stay in that category and they're going to heaven, but they won't have all the blessings that others receive because they didn't do anything while they were here on earth for God. Well, guess what? That particular teaching came straight out of hell from Satan to lead people astray, to let people think that they're okay in their lost condition. Remember, last week I said that Jesus called those who he said, depart from me, lawless ones. They wouldn't submit to God's word. They wouldn't submit to his law, his commands. They did not love God, and they did not love their neighbors themselves. Now, we also learn from this particular passage that there are different types of professors. Just as Henry Skugel said a moment ago, A.W. Pink gives five different kinds of professors. And I want us to look at these five different ones. So we're going to kind of play, tell the truth this morning. And will the real Christian stand up? And you have to ask yourself, am I the real Christian? 
Well, first, there are those who simply are called nominal church members. By nominal, I mean they, they simply bear the name Christian, but that's as far as their profession goes. It goes no further than that. They may have been sprinkled or baptized as a child, but there's no evidence whatsoever that they are a child of God. And as we have been visiting in our neighborhood here, some individuals have come to the door and some have even shouted through the window, I'm Catholic. Now what do they mean by that? They're trying to convey a message. They are insinuating, I'm okay. I don't need what you have. I'm going to heaven. Now, what they should say is I am of the Roman Catholic group. See, they don't even, most of them don't even know what the word Catholic means. Now, those children that went to camp, you know what the word Catholic means, right? Take your head this way, you better know, because we talked about it at camp. Catholic is universal. The universal church, the invisible church. And all that are in the invisible church, all that are truly Catholic, are the ones that are going to heaven. Now, these who call themselves Catholic are of the Roman Catholic group. Some would call it church. I don't call it a church. It's a Roman Catholic group because they departed from the truth. Martin Luther and others tried to bring it back to the truth. That's the reason why we have what is called the Reformation. And as a result of the Reformation, they broke away from the Roman Catholic group. Now, many have been born into a country where Christianity is the primary religion. It is regarded as a mark of respectability to give some recognition and assent to Christianity. You see that, or you used to see it here in America. You don't see it as much in America now. You see it a lot in South America because of the Roman Catholic group, because a few drops of water have been sprinkled upon an infant's head by a priest. And they have received some kind of basic instruction in their religion during their childhood. But after they mature, they may occasionally visit on a Sunday, Easter, or Christmas. But that's as far as it goes. They, they have no desire whatsoever for spiritual things. They are nominal. Now, of course, if you ask them, they will strongly affirm, yes, I am a Christian. But that means little or nothing more than they're not a Jew, they're not a Muslim or pagan or open infidel. Such a one is usually grossly ignorant of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And the life of respectable pagan puts them to shame for they are no different from the typical worldly man. They go to the same places, they speak the same talk, they live the same sinful life. Such a person is not in the kingdom of God. They do not participate in the blessings of Christ here on earth and they will not participate in heaven. 
for they have never truly been born again. The sad truth is that they believe that they're going to be welcomed into heaven even though they have no evidence whatsoever. They have no fruit whatsoever. They are lawless ones and they don't even realize it. Second, are those who regard themselves as Christians for they are a little bit more advanced than that nominal church member. They were baptized and they can even repeat some of the catechisms and they have a little bit of knowledge about biblical doctrine. They have somewhat devoted themselves and attend worship and they even claim to be submissive to the authority of Christ and outwardly observe the outward acts of worship which characterize the followers of Christ. But they know nothing of the blessed communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, nor do they have the joy of the Lord as their strength. They've never come into that personal relationship of Jesus Christ. They've never been changed by grace. They've never been born again. Their religion is simply mental assent to certain doctrines and participating in the external ceremonies. They manifest no desire for the truth of God and having dominion, dominating power over their sinful affection. They regard those who do as fanatics, as hypocrites, for thinking godliness is required of a true Christian. How, how dare you press that upon me? They don't see that panning for spiritual things as the deer pants after the water as something that they should be concerned about. Matter of fact, to them, it's a, it's a waste of time and energy. They're like Esau, only concerned about satisfying the desire of the flesh immediately. They have no deep acquaintance with God. And they don't really care what it will cost them to satisfy the flesh. And it's clear that they're not in the kingdom of God. They're strangers to the operation of the Holy Spirit who alone makes a man yearn for the things of God. Listen again to what Henry Scougal said. What an infinite pleasure must it need be to lose ourselves in Christ and be wallowed up in the overcoming sense of His goodness to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, always ascending unto Him in flames of love. A soul will never know what solid joy and lasting pleasure means until being weary of itself. It renounces all its own possessions and gives itself up to the author of its being and feels itself becoming hallowed and devoted thing, and can say from an inward sense and feeling, my beloved is mine, and I am his. 
I am content to be anything for him and care not for myself, but that I may serve him. See, that is what communion with Christ is. To know that he is my beloved and that I am his and I'm content living for him. Whatever that might cost, I'm content living for him and serving him. This second group has no idea of what Henry Schugel's talking about. They have no desire to grasp those spiritual things. And that's why they'll never see heaven. The third group I call the deceived church members. Proverbs 30, 12 says, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from its filth. See, they think they're pure, but what does the Scripture say? They're not washed from the filth. They've never been converted. They've never been cleansed of their sin. They look with pharisaical pity upon those that I mentioned earlier. They deem themselves as knowing so much more, better taught. They place no hope in being sprinkled as infants or in their membership. They believe that they are well grounded in their confession of faith, priding themselves in their intellectual knowledge of God's word, and are sure that Christ died for them, and they know him as their Lord and Savior. They have an unshakable assurance. But meekness and lowliness is not one of their characteristics. They are strangers to having patience and forgiving others. The fruit of the Spirit and practical holiness and godliness are missing from their daily lives. They may be addressed as a brother or sister in Christ, but what does it profit one to have the reputation of being a wealthy man if he has not the ability to purchase the necessary necessities of life? What good is it to call someone a healthy person if he's eaten up with a disease? See, Jesus is the one who says, you must be born again. And he stands at the entrance into the kingdom and will only allow those who know him and he knows them to enter. Only those who he has forgiven and given life to. There have been more people than I would like to admit who have come through this local church who have fit into this category. And only time will tell if they ever truly knew Christ as Lord and Savior. There have been teens who have left the faith, parents who have divorced their spouse, and even church leaders who have followed the way of Deimos and no longer walk in the path of righteousness, but yet they still think that all is well with their soul. And they will have a rude awakening on that day when Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. The fourth group I call hypocritical professors. This group is smaller than the preceding group that I just mentioned. They are just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Those who are constantly 
being rebuked by Jesus in the Scriptures for their hypocrisy. I mean, there is very little hope for these, for they deliberately assume a role in the church and, and they play the part very well. Deep down, they know that they are not living up to Jesus' teachings. But yet they suppress that and they deny that. They continue to play the role, wanting everyone to think that they are believer. But they know deep down that they are empty. That there's nothing really alive in them as far as the Spirit is concerned. There's no joy in their life in worshiping God, yet they show up because they know they must show up to keep up their reputation. Their worship is simply a habit. They walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they joined the church, they were baptized, they claimed to know God, but they're unwilling to be honest with themselves or anyone about their true spiritual condition. They even take great steps to persuade others of their piety, not being content with dull, formal duties. So they put on a, an appearance, seeking to cause people to think that they're deeply interested in the things of God and that they do have a zeal for God. They're like Judas. He hid his true condition very well. So well that the other disciples, they appointed him as the treasurer. I mean, you don't appoint someone as the treasurer unless you trust them and think that they are spiritual. His hypocrisy led him to question everything. And he ended up taking his own life by suicide. I mean, how tragic this was. He was with Christ for nearly three years, and yet he did not know him savingly. But worse, he betrayed Jesus by going to Jesus' enemies and turning Jesus over to them for 30 pieces of gold. This group is the vilest of all four. Such individuals are so foolish, God will not impose upon them. These people are not likely to be more severely punished for dishonoring God's name in their way. And as Jesus told the hypocrites of his day, you will be cast into utter darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. They may be like Esau. There is no repentance left for them. Now that may bother some in what Scripture says about Esau. It says Esau sought repentance but didn't find it. Do what? Esau sought repentance, the Scripture says, and did not find it. But you must remember the situation to understand what Hebrews is telling us about Esau. What was the repentance that he sought? Hebrews says, 12, 16, and 17, lest there be any fornicators or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards... 
when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He sought repentance diligently with tears. But it says he found no place for it. Now repentance is a very important word. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith states this. It is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. That's how important repentance is. If there's no repentance, there's no pardon. It's very important that the Christian life, that the Bible tells us that if we repent, we shall be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the basic idea of repentance is turning away from sin, having a changed heart, which regards our sinfulness. And therefore, we make a sincere determination and effort to not repeat our sin. And God accepts such Repentance, because it is joined to faith in Jesus Christ. So we see that Esau cried bitterly and pleaded for the blessing, yet he was turned away. Why? Why did he not receive what 1 John 1, 9 tells us, forgiveness and, and cleansing? Why was he turned away? Well, if you examine what took place in Genesis 25 very closely, you will see that the repentance of Esau was not a godly repentance which God requires us to have. And Hebrews deals with the difficulty there in chapter 12. It deals with the difficulties that Christians face and how Christians are to persevere in the faith when they have trials. So the writer uses Esau as an example of one who spurns the grace of God. We see that the writer of Hebrews says that Esau was a profane man. Now that doesn't mean that God cannot say profane man, but he gives us evidence that Esau never truly repented of being a profane man. He rejected his birthright. He married two Canaanite women. He didn't have the faith of Abraham or Isaac. Physical appetites were more important to him than spiritual privileges. His sorrow was intense, but it was not a sorrow of regret from what he had done. Now facing the consequences of his earlier actions, his sorrow was too late. He had despised his birthright. He had rejected God himself. Though his sorrow was real, though it was intense, he descended into anger and he wanted to do what? He wanted to murder Jacob. Whose fault was it? Yes, Jacob deceived him, but whose fault was it? Did he have to be deceived? No. His flesh overrode his mind, as far as the birthright, 
He yearned to please the flesh. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That was Esau's sorrow, the sorrow of the world. Esau simply regretted that he had lost the birthright, but yet he himself did not even truly understand all that was involved in the birthright. It should lead to a true fear of God and a determination not to offend this holy God by continuing in your sin. Esau continued in his sin. So he had no repentance. His repentance was worldly Saul, not godly Saul. And that's that particular group of individuals. They repented, but yet it was not a godly Saul. It was a worldly Saul. Now the final group is what I would call the genuine professor. A real Christian. One who enjoys the blessings of God's kingdom because he has experienced God's grace. He will be admitted into the kingdom of glory because he has been born again. He does the will of the Father which is in heaven as Jesus says in this particular passage here. He is submissive and obedient to God's will. God is his authority. Now two points I want you to see first. What is the means of my Father's will, of doing my Father's will, as Jesus says there? Well, listen to what the great commentator John Brown says. The fundamental part of doing the will of God is revealed in these words. This is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. So where this is compiled with everything else follows. In other words, hear him, hear Christ, obey the words of Christ, follow Christ. And if you're doing that, everything else will follow. So the will of the Father is perfectly made known by who? By the incarnate Son, by the incarnate Word, Jesus himself. He is the final spokesman of God. Remember Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 tells us that he was the final spokesman. All judgment being committed to Jesus Christ, as John 5, 22 says. So the will of the Father is that we should forsake our sins and look to Christ, trust in Christ. Take his yoke upon us and follow him. To do anything less is yet call him our Lord is a great horrible mockery. So perfect and intimate is the oneness of the Father and the Son that Christ said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, is the one who builds his house upon rock, which we'll look at next week. So you see, whoever hears my sayings, now hears means obey, 
my sayings and does them is like one who builds his house upon rock. Second, what is meant by divine will? Now, obviously, it doesn't mean a perfect performance, for none of us can do a perfect performance. There is no Christian who has ever attained such an excellent life, though nothing short of its standard before us will allow us to get into heaven. So therefore, we have to do what? We have to look at one who has done a perfect performance, one who has kept the law perfectly, one who has done all that the Father has required of him. And of course, that is Christ. So it means that I have surrendered my heart and will to Christ so that I truly desire him to reign over me as my Lord. For him to order my life in everything. It means that I have subjected myself to his authority and that it is the prevailing bent of my mind and constant endeavor to please him and honor him in every single thing that I do. Always. Without question. It means that I genuinely aim both internally and externally to conform to his holy image and that it's my greatest grief when I do not please him. Is it? Is it your greatest grief when you do not please him? When you say things that you ought never allow to come out of your mouth? Is it your greatest grief? Knowing that you have dishonored your Lord and your Savior, it means that I truly seek that my thoughts, affections, and actions are regulated by His precepts. It is not a sinless obedience, which is here in view, but it's a sincere obedience. We will sin, but yet there's to be that sincere obedience to Him in all things. It is not a forced one, but one that is prompt by what? It's one that is prompt by love. The love of God. The love that Christ showed us in stretching out His arms and dying there at Calvary, knowing that He has loved us with an everlasting love, knowing that He gave His life for you and me. That love flows into us to where we love Him. It is not merely an external compliance with the divine command, but a doing the will of God from the heart. Our heart yearns to do His will and obey Him in all things because we now have a new heart. That's the real Christian. Is that you? Can you say, yes, that's me. That's my desire to do the Father's will, to do His divine will, 
always. That's my longing to pursue holiness, to be like Christ, to live for Him and bring glory and honor in every single thing that I do in this life. That's what I want. And whatever He says, I'm willing to do. Wherever He sends, I'm willing to go. For He died for me and therefore I desire to live for Him. That's the real Christian. And the way one comes to know that true life is through grace. When grace comes in and changes the heart and makes a person, as the scripture says, a new creation to where he has the desire for the things of God. It's not something that we can produce in ourselves. It only comes from the Spirit of God. Those are the ones that Jesus will say to Welcome thy good and faithful servant, enter into my kingdom. And only those, the other four, will be told, sadly, depart from me. I never knew you. We know. We know deep down in our heart. Now, we may be deceived by a heart, but we know deep down in our heart whether this is our life or not. If you don't know, Get along with God. Pray to God. Ask God to show you who you really are. For only God can show you that by His Spirit and by His Word. And may He be pleased to take the words that were proclaimed today and show you the truth of who you really are. Because it's my desire that no one here hears those words that Jesus says here in this passage in verse 23, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Go to Christ. Cry to Christ. Repent of your sins and look to Christ and Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would open eyes and ears so that each of us would see our true condition. Whether or not we have truly come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior or not, do not allow us to be deceived by the evil one. Father, how we pray that your spirit would bring us to true repentance and faith in Christ. And Father, I pray for those who are Christians that we would renew our commitment to Christ to be faithful to do the will of the Father so that we might know that our foundation is built upon 
the rock. Work to bring glory and honor to thy name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and to his glory.